The Gospel according to St. Luke. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Gospel of the Lord. Our Father, um, we, we come before you, uh, um, and we look into your word, and we ask that uh, you would meet us, um, that you would send your spirit upon us, that you would, um, we, that you would uh, give us wisdom, that you would illumine the text for us, that, uh, that we would meet your son Jesus in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, you can grab your seat, and uh, you can turn to our gospel reading, um, which is in Luke chapter 4. This morning, we are continuing on in our series on the life of Jesus as recorded by Luke. We're picking up the story of Jesus's life after Jesus has been baptized. He's gone off into the desert and he's resisted being tempted by Satan there. And now he's returning to his hometown, the place where he grew up, Nazareth. We're told he is returning in the power of the Spirit. This is, in a sense, a launching point into Jesus' public ministry. Here, Jesus' mission and purpose are focused. From here on, we will see Jesus traveling around, healing people, delivering people from demons, and teaching. And as he does so, he gains a following. God's Holy Spirit being present and remaining on Jesus is important. 
Prior to Jesus' arrival, throughout the history of God interacting with humanity, which is recounted in what we call the Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible, prior to Jesus, the Holy Spirit was present but would come and go. The Holy Spirit would rest on certain people for a time, and often those people were regarded as prophets. They would speak the words of God. So, for example, we have three Old Testament prophets mentioned in our passage this morning. Isaiah, whose book Jesus reads from, and Elijah and Elisha. We'll get into what these prophets are all about in a few minutes. But here, the Holy Spirit remains on Jesus. And I pause on this for a moment, because the presence of the Holy Spirit is an important emphasis of Luke's. The Holy Spirit rests on Jesus and does not leave. In fact, later on, when we come to Luke's second part of the history of Jesus and his people, which is known as the book of Acts, we find Jesus giving the same Holy Spirit to his followers who are entrusted with continuing on Jesus' mission, spreading this good news of what Jesus has done and is doing to the world. The Spirit then leads on through the book of Acts all the way through history up to this present day. We are a part of this same story. The same Holy Spirit is given to us. We're a continuation of what is happening here. But I get ahead of myself. We're not there yet in our passage. In our passage, we're actually at the beginning of what Jesus is doing. Something new is happening in Jesus. Yet right here at the beginning, Themes, things seem to be getting off to a rocky start. Prophets have a way of saying things, often speaking truth to power, that get them exiled or killed. So the prophet Daniel, for instance, gets thrown into the lion's den. Um, the prophet Jeremiah is thrown into a cistern. Uh, some traditions believe Isaiah was sawn in two. So Jesus seems to be acting right in line with prophetic tradition in our passage here. We meet Jesus as he returns to his hometown, and he's initially received quite well. People are speaking with awe and wonder about him. But a few short verses later, we find the same people wanting to kill him. So what exactly is it that causes the people to move from embracing Jesus to wanting to kill him? It seems that there's something about Jesus that doesn't allow us to remain neutral or uncertain about him for long. Once you really engage with Jesus, your hand is forced. Either you're captivated by who he is and what he says and does, or you're offended and scandalized by the same. And can I suggest that if you're neither captivated nor scandalized by Jesus, you're not really listening to him. So let's engage with Jesus this morning. My hope is that you'll come away captivated by him, whether for the first time or more deeply than you have been already. But maybe you will resonate more with the villagers who want to toss him off a cliff. Jesus can have that effect. And sometimes he can do both of these things to you at the same time. If any of this is where you find yourself as we go through this passage, uh, can I invite you to interrogate the anger or the discomfort that rises in you, the unsettledness that's in your soul. And if you're feeling captivated, interrogate that too. 
We are great at self-deception, and we like warm, fuzzy feelings. We like feeling good. All of these things often mask deeper things within us, and those things are the things that Jesus wants to heal. And so as we look into this passage, we're going to look at the two responses to Jesus and his message that I've already talked about. Glowing adoration on one hand and throwing him off a cliff on the other hand. We're going to look at those two things and how they force us to ask a question. And the question is simple. It's what, what on earth did Jesus say or do to a crowd that absolutely delights in his talk at the synagogue and makes them want to throw him off a cliff? And as we do this, uh, I, think, uh, I think this will guide us as we seek to respond to Jesus ourselves. What are we to do when we are faced with Jesus? So Jesus has returned to Nazareth. That's where the angel appeared to Mary to announce his birth. That's where he was raised as a child. And a lot of us, uh, especially if we've grown up in the church um, or we're familiar with the story of Christmas or we've been to Israel, uh, we've heard of Nazareth. It, it kind of has this feeling of importance to it. And a lot of it is there's, there's so much Christian history attached to it now. And even in the present day, like Nazareth is a much larger, more complicated city than, than back then. But Nazareth in Jesus' day is, is kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's a small town with a population probably somewhere between 200 and 500 people. It's on no major trade routes. Most of its population are poor agricultural workers. There's no reason to go there. Um, and, and, there's, and it's not really on the way to anywhere. Right? There's, there's many other small towns scattered throughout the countryside, and, and, and there's, there's nothing that really makes Nazareth stand out. But there's more to this location, though. Right? Nazareth is in a larger geographical area called Galilee. And this larger area is where Jesus will spend a lot of time traveling around and teaching in. Galilee at this time... Um, it's kind of an in-between space in the middle of a larger in-between space. What do I mean that? By, mean by that? Well, Israel as a whole um, is now occupied territory in Jesus' day. After the people of God are exiled under the Assyrians and Babylonians, and this is hundreds of years before Jesus shows up, some of them were permitted to return and try to rebuild once the Persian Empire rose to power. As power shifted, the Roman Empire rose up and became dominant. So by Jesus' day, the Roman Empire is ruling the land, essentially through a Syrian puppet government. It's a complicated space. So Israel is caught in the middle of an empire, and Galilee is in the middle of the middle. Now, the center of political and military power is far away in Rome. And even though the Romans had some strategic cities throughout the empire known as colonies, um, which are kind of mini representatives of Rome with the military and political influence that comes with that, um, there's, there's not really any of those around southern Galilee where Nazareth is. The area is just not that important from the perspective of the Roman Empire. But Nazareth is also quite far removed from the center of religious power and influence in Israel. That title belongs to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where the temple is. That's where people make pilgrimages to. 
And there was this attitude among a lot of the people that the closer you lived to Jerusalem, the better you were. Right? So from the perspective of the many people who lived down in the big city, those people who lived far away from Jerusalem, especially those poor people off in Galilee, were not as virtuous, they're maybe even sinful and unclean, and possibly even tainted by paganism. For those of you who are familiar with John's Gospel, um, you may think of when uh, the disciple Nathaniel is told by the disciple Peter that you know, he's like, I think I found the Messiah. He's in Nazareth. And Nathaniel just remarks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? So, so, so according to Rome, um, Galileans, people from Galilee, are not very important. Right? According to Jerusalem, Galileans are technically Jews, but they're almost as bad as Gentiles. And Nazareth is smack in the middle of that. Now, this is all important to keep in mind as Jesus shows up again in Nazareth. A report about him has already arrived ahead of him, and the town is full of anticipation. Jesus has a, a custom of visiting the synagogue, the common place of worship in many towns and cities, and it's his turn to read from the scriptures. So he's handed the scroll with the writings from the prophet Isaiah, and he reads from it. He actually reads a combination of two parts of Isaiah. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, which is part of our Old Testament reading uh, that Bruce read for us. And he reads from Isaiah 58, verse 6. He kind of mashes them together. The words he speaks would have been familiar. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. They're familiar because by this time, these words from Isaiah were understood to be describing the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of Israel who will free them from the Ro occupying Roman forces, usher in a new time of peace and prosperity. Jesus takes the scroll, hands it to the attendant, and he sits down. Every eye is on him. They're waiting to hear what he has to say. And Jesus speaks one line. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he doesn't even get to speak the next line of his sermon. Right? Everyone starts marveling at his words and speaking well of him. And somebody shouts out, isn't this Joseph's son? And then everything changes. Today, this word's repeated in Luke 10 times and then nine more times in the book of Acts. And it's used repeatedly in the context of salvation being fulfilled through Jesus. But there appears to be a misunderstanding going on here. The crowd's going wild, right? The hometown boy has returned. And what a return. He's the one everyone's been waiting for. And he's going to put this town on the map. We like to claim people who are successful as our own, don't we? Can you relate to this? My mom uh, is, is from Trinidad, uh, and, and we Trinidadians love to claim our own when they hit it big. So uh, V.S. Naipaul, he's a Nobel Prize winning author. Um, he was born in Trinidad before moving to England. Um, he's one of us. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. His family were, were Yoruba who were enslaved on a plantation in Trinidad before they were brought to the United States. 
and he became one of the greatest basketball players of all time. He's ours too. And every now and then I'll get into a conversation with one of my mom's sisters, one of my aunties, and they'll start talking about someone like, like Nicki Minaj or Cardi B, and I'll be like, like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, like, you, you like Cardi B, like, like you're, you're, you're like 70 and you're listening to Cardi B, right? And my, my auntie will be like, well, well, her mom's from Trinidad, as if it, you know, that settles everything. She's successful, she's wealthy, she's ours. And I know other cultures do this too, right? But my point is, regardless of our heritage, we all like to latch on to those we deem successful or influential or powerful and claim them as our own. Something similar is going on here. The people of Nazareth want to claim Jesus for their own. Isn't this the son of Joseph? Right, you know, like, he may have been kind of strange when he was young. You know, his family went off and lived in Egypt for a while, and there's all those weird stories about his birth, and his cousin John, like, that guy's just kind of plain nuts. But, but, you know, I was a little concerned about Jesus, but look at him now. Joseph's son, I knew it all along. But there's a problem here. The problem is they're trying to claim Jesus on their own terms for their own agendas. Think about how much it would mean for a small Galilean town in the middle of nowhere to be the hometown of the Messiah. Think of the opportunities, think of the prestige, the fame, the wealth, the influence. Here's the same thing. Here's the thing. We do the same thing with Jesus. We try to claim Jesus for our own benefit. We claim him for our political party. We claim him for our nation. We claim him for our theological position. We claim him when it's good for our pocketbooks. We claim him if it gets us into the right social circles or if it just makes us comfortable. We can actually get captivated with Jesus for all the wrong reasons, for selfish reasons. Emmanuel Anglican Church exists to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City. That's our, uh, our mission, our vision statement. It's our statement, um, right? If you haven't heard it before, now you have. It's a great statement, but there's a problem if we're not seeing Jesus as he is. If we see him as convenient for us, because if our view of Jesus is skewed, we're going to be telling and reflecting something far different than Jesus' beauty, and we won't be contributing to the flourishing of the world around us. We're not standing in the line of continuity with the Holy Spirit about Jesus' mission. So Jesus, even in his hometown, is not willing to let those who think they know him best settle with a false understanding of who he is and what he's about. So Jesus points people back to who he is when he starts talking about Elisha and Elijah. All right, so far, nobody's ready to kill Jesus yet, but just wait six verses. Jesus picks up on what's going on with the crowd here. He says to everyone, well, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. It's, it's his way of saying, like, I know you want me to demonstrate that I'm the Messiah by doing 
doing right here before you all the amazing things that you've heard it said that I've done. But not, I'm not going to do it. And here's why. A prophet is never accepted in his hometown. Look at Elijah. So Jesus takes them right back to a really bleak time in Israel's history. The king in Israel back then is a man named Ahab. Ahab is described in the book of 1 Kings as, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. It's not a good sign. Ahab marries a Sidonian princess named Jezebel, who promptly establishes the worship of a god named Baal. And Sidon is one of Israel's historic enemies. So Elijah happens to be God's prophet at the time. And his first act as a prophet under the evil king Ahab is to announce that there will be a drought in the land. This drought lasts for, for, for a few years, and eventually Elijah is directed to go and stay with a widow in a place called Zarephath, which is in the land of Sidon, where Jezebel's from. And there God miraculously provides food for Elijah and the Sidonian widow and her son. And he even raises the widow's son from the dead when the son gets sick and dies. So Jesus here, he, he's basically referencing this story. He's, he's saying to, to his, his hometown people that it's not all about you. There's something bigger going on here. I am a prophet. I, in fact, I am the Messiah. That's why I read the passage from Isaiah and said, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. But I'm not here for your status and your comfort and your wealth. My mission is to reach out to the poor and the oppressed and the prisoners and the blind. In Israel, yes, but well beyond Israel. In the whole world, and yes, even to your enemies. But Jesus, being Jesus, he doesn't stop there. He pushes things just a little bit further. He's driving things closer to home. He tells them another story. This one is about Elisha. Now, Elisha is a prophet. He, he inherits the role of prophet after Elijah. Now, if we fast forward a bit, King Ahab is dead. His son Joram is king. The nation of Israel is split in two. There's a northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. It's a fragile time for the people of God. And Elisha is approached by a man named Naaman who has leprosy, which is a, a skin disease that damages your, your skin and nerves. And he's been told that there's this man in, in Israel, there's this guy, Elisha, this prophet, that can heal him. Now, Naaman happens to be a great commander in the army of the king of Syria. And Jesus goes out of his way to emphasize that point, right? Naaman the Syrian. And Jesus points out that there are many people with leprosy in Israel at the time, but only Naaman the Syrian was healed. Syria, they're the enemy. And they're the enemy that's presently colluded with Rome in oppressing us. But there's a little more to this story that one would be familiar with if, if you're familiar with the story. Naaman is healed by Elisha. And as a wealthy, influential man, he offers to compensate Elisha very richly. Elisha declines, and Naaman goes on his way back home. But, but, but 
Elisha has a servant named Gehazi, who thinks Elijah has let the enemy off too easily and rushes after Naaman and makes up this great story to get some of the reward from him. Gehazi actually makes off with about 150 pounds of silver. Not a bad haul. But Elisha knows what's up, and he confronts Gehazi. And the end result is Gehazi ends up afflicted with leprosy, the very thing that the enemy, that Naaman, had. It seems Gehazi has something in common with the people of Nazareth. Right? He's in it not for the freedom and healing that God brings, but for himself. And he cannot bear to see the enemy benefiting from God's grace. This brings us back to the conflict that's happening with Jesus. Right? This is where all hell breaks loose and the people who grew up with Jesus try to throw him off a cliff. He's gone too far. And wait a minute, like, Jesus left out that part of Isaiah 61 when he was reading, right? That part about the day of vengeance of the Lord. So, so Jesus is pointing us away from our selfish motives and towards others, right? A widow is fed who's not even part of Israel. An enemy commanding officer is healed, right? This is reason for celebration, not rage. See, the reason Jesus came was to reconcile people to God, to draw them to himself. And he, he's, he's faithful to provide for his own. Like he knows what we need. He's faithful to provide for us. But the mission that he is on and that we're included in is reaching out to others and inviting them into this new life with Jesus, this new community that Jesus is forming. And all of the vision that he lays out when he reads from Isaiah is about the abundance of God overflowing to the world and witnessing to what it will be like when everything is set right in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? Good news to the poor. The oppressed are set free. Captives are set free. The blind are healed. The year of the Lord's favor is here. Justice is served. These words from Isaiah, uh, in one sense, they're describing spiritual reality, right? We need to be set free from how sin twists us to be so consumed with selfish pursuits that we'll even use religion. We'll use Jesus to get whatever we want. We need to have our eyes opened to the fact that Jesus is the one who sets us free by his death and resurrection so that we can receive the love of God for us, this love of God which frees us to love others. But th this is not just about spiritual reality, right? right th th what, what God does in us, this overflows to the world around us, to providing for those who are in poverty, to bringing freedom to the oppressed, to restoring sight to the blind, to healing those who are sick. These are witnesses to God making things right in the world, they're a foreshadowing of what is to come. It's a foretaste of what things will be like when Jesus returns to make all things new. We're not going to make it happen, but we bear witness to that in what we do. This is how we, we reflect Jesus to the world. So what's your reaction to Jesus? Do you try to use him to get what you want? Do you want to be part of what he's doing? Will you let him heal you, right, right down in the depths of your soul? Manuel, let's open ourselves up to Jesus because of the things that he gives, 
are better than the things that we want. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.